Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. All right, welcome back. We've got another awesome episode in line here on Roots and Ruminants. Jared and I are sitting down on the phone today. We've got Roy Thompson. And uh, I heard Roy Thompson talk the South Dakota Soil Health Coalition winter meeting and uh, knew that he would be a fantastic guest at some point. And last month's podcast actually leads into this pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about food injustice, which was a new topic for me. But it got us talking about the nutritional side of all these things that we're doing on the farm and soil health. And so um, this one's going to be fun. I know this is a compelling story that Roy's going to share with us. Um, so with that, Roy, we're going to start first with you just introducing yourself, where you're at. Tell us about your farming operation and, and, and just the scope of, of that business. Sure, sure. Well, thank you so much. It is a true honor to be asked to be on your podcast. And uh, it was an honor to meet you after the conference at uh, Sioux Falls there this last winter. And yeah. I've been looking forward to it ever since. So thank you so much you for bet. having me. You bet. We appreciate uh, it. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I've, I've always enjoyed podcasting, so it's exciting to actually be on a, be on a podcast. So uh, my operation today is, is we've been trying to transition to more of a regenerative model here for the last five years or so. And it's been a, a wonderful ride. There've been, I've learned more from my failures than my successes probably, but uh, my wife and I, we, we have uh, three kids, two twin five-year-olds and a seven-year-old girl. And uh, it's just so much fun to be able to take them along, whether we're, you know, ranching or farming or whatever it is we're doing and get to have them be, be a part as well. Um, so we, started kind of agriculture kind of in the farming side of it in 2011. And I didn't know the first thing about it. I just knew how to check oil on a tractor pretty much. So I, you know, we did a strictly conventional model. I learned corn, wheat, bean rotation and the chemicals and fertilizer and soil testing and just kind of going off of the recommendations from the elevator and, and everything like that. And, and throughout this, our journey, we've been trying to transition where we've since cut fertility by, uh, you know, about 50%. We're putting down far less fertilizer. I, I no longer use residual chemicals, um, at least uh, not any long-lasting residual chemicals, I guess. And trying to go uh, more of a certain crops we'll do, we'll consider a regen year and we'll graze with our cattle. So we'll plant an early season cover crop and try to graze that. A lot of times what I do is I plant that in the fall and then I graze it in the spring and then go into it with a warm season cover crop that we can graze in the fall or leave for winter grazing as well. And then I'll go into that with corn the following year. Uh, we've cut out as most as we can, we've cut out uh, any seed treatment. And so I planned untreated conventional corn. Um, and then in the cover crop mixes, I did, I say most of the stuff because I cut out all seed treatments. And then this year, I was planting some soybeans, which I only plant on certain certain acres, and I was planting it, uh, naked bean, just totally untreated, and I got to researching a little bit because I knew I had a wireworm issue there in my corn two years before, and come to find out that that can be a problem for up to five years, and so I quickly 
ran and got the rest of mine treated because I had a wreck with uh, untreated corn down on those acres a couple years prior. And I, I learned an interesting phrase this, this winter at one of the soil health conferences is people said, you need to earn the right to cut back on inputs. And I'll just put it this way. I, I had not earned the right to cut back on inputs down on that quarter. And so we kind of had a wreck one year. And then um, last year I had it in a season long cover crop and then I went in with soybeans this year. And uh, so I went back, I got half the beans treated and we did half the quarter of untreated beans, half the quarter treated. And there is, there is so far, I've seen a slight stand loss on the untreated, but um, in our other fields that we've done more regenerative practices on, there was no change at all. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, you couldn't even see the line between the untreated and treated. And so it just, it shows me uh, the way we take care of our soil year to year really is going to, uh, you know, allow us the opportunity to cut inputs in the future. So we've cut fertility greatly. We've cut seed treatments. We've uh, gotten to more conventional grains. Um, These soybeans were were a Roundup Ready variety, but other than that, we haven't planted much for GMOs. Um, Also, uh, we, we've integrated livestock as most we can. Usually every acre we have eventually gets cattle across it throughout the year. Um, but, uh, being, these soybeans, they're, they're 20 minutes away. So I don't haul my cows down there to do anything there. And obviously that's why I went with beans down there is cause I knew I wouldn't take cattle there anyway. So, uh, try to go with a lot of cover crops and, uh, uh, conventional seed on the corn and uh, in any cover crops we do, I planted uh, some spring triticale this year for grain and typically do some oats and peas or straight oats. Um, this year, I'm glad we, we usually every year put a couple hundred acres of oats in. And I'm glad we didn't this year, just the way the dry uh, spring worked out. I don't know that there's been a real great oats crop in our area so far. Um, and even some of the triticale is, is really hurting as well, but Thankfully, uh, you know, we got a good shot of rain here in the last week. We got about four inches of rain in the last 10 days. So that'll uh, help. So that's been a, yeah, yeah absolutely. Four inches well. Yeah, that's a big development so between these last few podcasts that we've done is the uh, four to five inch rain through most of eastern South Dakota has really uh, been a game changer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, it really blows my mind that, uh, you know, the stuff I planted, even the beans I planted back in, in the middle of May, uh, they, they sat there and held on. I couldn't believe it. They're a little yellow looking, but I checked yesterday and they're starting to get that green color back and take off again. So that's a, a huge, huge blessing to have that rain. And uh, so there's definitely a, a benefit with that moisture we had there. But uh, And the corn has taken off. There were some spots where the corn was really up and down and pretty droughted out on uh, certain spots of the field where there was no moisture to begin with. And, uh, but I think it'll grow out of it and we still have a plant growing there. So I'm really thankful for that. Um, so yeah, it's been a real, real dry spring, but I have noticed the fields that we, uh, you know, have been doing more cover crops on and more, uh, cattle integration on, they held a little more moisture through the winter. And, uh, that's been really nice because then our, our stuff we planted in there got off, got going and, uh, was able to hold on just long enough for the rain. So that was, that was wonderful. Great to hear. So tell us about your cow herd, uh, uh, stocker operation, cow calf. What do you have for beef cow? Yep. So for ranching, we, we do a cow calf operation. We keep our own replacement heifers for breeding. 
and we usually uh, keep some yearling steers that we uh, grass finish and directly market to the consumer. And uh, we usually finish those on a cover crop mix that's specifically designed for kind of helping protect flavor and marbling and uh, and good good weight gains there, as well as we put some stuff in there uh, that they won't graze, hopefully to catch snow. Um, so we we do run some yearlings, cow-calf operation, and uh, uh, usually we have some native pasture we run the cows and calves on. And when the year allows and we have enough moisture, uh, the yearlings, we like to keep on cover crop uh, as much as we can. Was this was this operation a family operation, or, or at what point did you get involved? Did you- yeah, so uh, my dad always had uh, some farm acres that usually planted to something to take off for hay. It was always, uh, you know, my whole family is strictly ranchers. Uh, they don't enjoy the, the farming side of it as much. And when I came along, I'm the youngest of, uh, of four, so I have two older brothers and a sister. And when I came along, I enjoyed more of the equipment and uh, working on equipment and uh, more of the getting the crop in and helping with harvest and things like that. And so when I was in high school, my dad had an opportunity to buy some more farmland, uh, which he did. And throughout my tech school years and early, I got married right out of tech school. And my wife and I held, had a custom fencing business. And dad said, well, you've always enjoyed the equipment. You've enjoyed working with the soil more than any of us have. So why don't you just take this over? And so he let over, he let me lease some stuff that he was leasing and I would put in his crop and I put in my crop and, and I uh, started backing away on custom fencing and going more all in, in about 2011, 2012 with farming. And uh, so, yeah, I took over some for my dad about that time we picked up some lease and then there was some land that came up for sale that my wife and I were able to buy. And we turned half of that into uh, farm ground. Uh, it had just been in hayland before that. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of started from my dad and then my brother uh, took some hayland out of production that we started farming. And so I do a little bit for my brother, a little bit for my dad, and then my wife and I have our own farming as well. And, uh, and then the cattle are on native grass and, and stuff while we're doing our farm work and usually calving right before we start our farming in the spring. So, Okay, thanks for that. And I don't know if we actually covered this, but you're located by Glenham, South Dakota, correct? Correct, yep. So I, I live probably 20 miles from Glenham, and uh, the town that we're closest to is Akaska. So any walleye fishermen uh, out there probably know where Akaska is, but that's the only way they probably know where Akaska is. Yeah, that's, so it's a very uh, neat country in there. So kind of like, you know, hill country kind of prior leading up to the Missouri River on the east side of the Missouri River, south of Mulberge, right? Yes, absolutely. So I'm, I'm kind of right on the line here. Uh, everything south of me is really hilly and more uh, uh, as the valley kind of leads up to the river, the Swan Creek, uh, the road kind of follows Swan Creek up to the Missouri. And uh, so everything south of me is a lot of hills, a lot of pasture land and, and uh, strictly more ranch country. And then for me north, they get into bigger and bigger fields and more row crop and corn and bean rotation and things of that nature. Um, and then, yeah, I'm probably about five miles from the Missouri River. And okay. uh, the rest of my family, they all, they all ranch. Uh, the majority of their land is West River, actually. So, okay. so tell us about, uh, so as we get into, you know, explain how your operation looks today, uh, the practices and things that you've been trying to do. And 
Let's go back and talk about the the journey of how you got here. Is there, you know, you mentioned you had the, the fencing company and started into farming. You were very traditional corn, soybeans, wheat, you know, kind of rotation. What what caused you or brought about the desire to make a change? What did that look like? When was that? And, and how would that journey start? Yes. Well, uh, how much time do you have? We, we've got a lot <laughs> of time. Yeah, we got, we got okay, good. I, I, we're not I, limited I on love- podcasts. So you can... Joe uh, Rogan could do these for five hours, oh, yeah. so we could probably do it. For yes, hour. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, that's good. I uh, and, and I, I really do enjoy telling the story because I, I hope it brings, you know, I hope it brings hope to the listeners that um, my story kind of, our, our story kind of started transitioning actually in 2014. Uh, yeah, we were corn, wheat, beans. I was putting down, you know, it, it's uh, maybe not going to sound like a lot to some people, but. I was putting down um, corn, just take for instance, I was putting down 120 pounds of mez. I was putting down about uh, 280 to 300 pounds of urea, um, 250 to 300 pounds of urea, and uh, usually seven gallons of infero fertilizer and hoping for about 130 bushel corn crop. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of fertility that I was just going off for recommendations. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really trying to uh, have the highest, newest, chemical that came out. So, you know, you only have to go through it one or two times and it just, it just wasn't working. That was, it was so expensive. Um, and we had, when we got into farming, I, I kind of, I remember asking a bunch of people, well, do I borrow a bunch of money and get all the equipment I need? Do I, do I wait till I'm profitable and buy it with profit? Do I, you know, and people were just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, whatever you really want to do. And some people <laughs> say, no, don't buy any equipment until you have enough cash for it. Other people would say, you know, just buy what you need now. And uh, that's kind of what we did. We bought, you know, we owed money on land. We owed money on equipment. We owed money on cattle. We owed money on our operating. And it just wasn't working. It was uh, um, 2014 uh, kind of came and, uh, you know, financially it wasn't, it wasn't working out well. And so I'll pause that, the financial side, for, for a quick second and go back to uh, about 20 in 2007, when I got married, actually, I'd gotten real sick with Crohn's disease and a liver disease called PSC. Uh, and I was just, I was very, very sick and kind of pulled down. And it was, uh, before I hadn't even started farming yet at this time. And I, I got in the Mayo clinic, long story short, over a few months, they figured out what I had. And, uh, I started getting on an IV treatment, uh, every six weeks, very expensive drug. And, uh, she told me, my doctor told me when I first started it, well, this is only a therapy, you know, it's only going to last you about 10 years and then your body will grow immune to it. And we're going to have to switch up meds and see if we just can't give, keep you having quality of life. Cause there's really, this medicine isn't, isn't fixing anything. It's just making you feel better. And it was, it was about just for the treatment I was getting at that time, it was about 9,000 per IV. And, uh, so thankfully, I mean, obviously I couldn't have done it without health insurance at the time. And, Nine thousand. So with this how IV, often? And how often would you take every, these treatments? At that time, it was every eight weeks. Um, okay. But once my liver disease kind of uh, took off and was getting a little worse and worse, um, they actually ended up doubling. Since my liver was pulling my body down, my Crohn's flared up even worse. So they doubled the medicine and then and made me get it every six weeks. So that was the highest dose I could get of what was called Remicade. And so then that doubled the amount of medicine in the IV. So therefore it was, it was about 18,000 for treatment every six weeks. And wow. so it was very, very costly. Yeah. 
yep. annualized Absolutely. basis, 150000 Right. And the reason, the reason I talk about the financial side of the IV is because I felt like I couldn't give up my health insurance yep. while I was on this medicine because it was, you know, my deductible was 1000 and my co-insurance, I think I had to pay like another 1500 on top of that. But then my premium every month for, for Meredith and I, for my wife and I, was about 2400 a month. And uh, so therefore, it was, it was just pulling us down financially. It was, uh, it was so, by the time you paid your insurance and you paid your deductible and, and uh, your premium, you know, you're paying close to 30000 um, every year just in healthcare. So that was, that was also adding to the, the struggle, you know, financially with farming. But, so um, you, were, you were just out of college, you said, when you got married, right? So you're 23, yeah, right. 24 went, years old. Yep. I and, went to Lake Area Tech in Watertown for a two year tech degree. And so it was, it was after my second year, it was about March of my second year, just before I graduated that I started getting sick and I didn't know. I mean, I was just a, uh, you know, a young kid that just never thought much about getting sick. Whenever I did, I just took an antibiotic and got better <laughs> and, uh, got to feeling better and figured that was the thing you did. Mm-hmm. And so for three months, I would go back, I'd come home on the weekend and I'd run into the, to the small town doctor and he'd give me a, a Z pack, Zithromycin pack. I'd take it. I'd get to feel better. I'd go about almost to the day, a month, a month later, I get sick again. This time it was a little worse. So I went back in, I got the Z pack. I came home, took it, got to feeling a little better. Uh, not quite over it by about the third month it hit again. And this time I came back, got the third Z pack. And it just didn't get any better. I just kept feeling sick and, and, uh, was losing a lot of weight. And so it was, it was this thing that I, you know, I was just looking at the road in front of me, not really thinking about, well, you know, I should probably, uh, tell some, tell my mom and tell my, my doctor that I'm not getting any better. I never really thought about that. I was just taking each day at a time and, and, uh, really didn't care about health. I didn't care about nutrition and, yeah, like most 23-year-old guy. Like just <laughs> 21, <laughs> not, yep. I was 21, 21, yeah. You're a 21-year-old, yeah. young, yeah. healthy, active person. You don't right, think that right. you should be sick. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I was 21 that fall. I was actually 20 when I was diagnosed. And I, I uh, you know, at school, we didn't, we didn't eat a ton of junk that I thought. But, you know, it was, it was something that uh, I was on a lot of antibiotics throughout my life. When I was very young, I was even on antibiotics. And knowing what I know now, I think a lot of those antibiotics kind of compromised my microbiome uh, by by quite a ways, actually. It wasn't just a little bit and disrupted things there. And then come to find out I was sick with mono. Epstein-Barr virus is what it was, similar to mono. And uh, that's kind of what was pulling me down. I was feeling so exhausted and, and was kind of always there keeping me, uh, allowing me to be pulled down enough to where I kept getting sick month after month. And then that z just kind of, wiped out. See, like 70 to 80% of your immune system is in your gut. So when we're on antibiotics, it kind of really suppresses your immune system by, by a lot. So it was, it was kind of getting hit a few different directions there. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was on this IV. I thought that was just the way it should be. And I didn't know, she told me, you know, you have 10 years. I thought, boy, 10 years is a long ways away. And as long as it keeps working and I'm feeling good, I'll just keep, keep rolling along. And, uh, so in 2012, my liver disease kind of took off and I, uh, my liver enzymes spiked and they were about 700 times what they should be. And I was kind of starting to look jaundice and yellowing in my eyes and a headache over top of my head that made my, so 
sounds really strange, but made my skull feel almost soft. Uh, I noticed that uh, stress was a big indicator. Uh, I was actually buying a combine that year, and it wasn't even that costly of a combine, but with the financial situation I was in and being sick, every time I'd log on to Tractor House to look at combines, I'd start feeling over on the right side of my ribs, kind of right above my liver. I'd start feeling what I only explain as like a flutter. And I'd start getting a headache. I'd start getting sick. And come come to find out every time I felt that uh, stress hormone, cortisol, come into my bloodstream, uh, I, would, I would get pulled down very quickly and I'd feel absolutely miserable. Um, and so I needed to buy this combine, but I wasn't even healthy enough to go look at it. So my dad actually went and called me while he was looking at it and helped me kind of decide on one. And we decided to go with that. Well, I got in the Mayo Clinic pretty quick because I was getting so sick and my doctor got my labs and she said, Oh, we're going to, we're going to speed up your annual appointment. We're going to put it up a month earlier so you can come now. And I said, okay, great. So we went there and, and they did a procedure called an ERCP, which they went down through my throat, brushed open my bile ducts, my liver, because what was happening is PSC is called primary sclerosing cholangitis. And that's basically inflammation in your liver where scar tissue builds up on your bile duct and it narrows the passageway so your bile can't can't dump into your intestines and be taken out so uh it was kind of backing up into my system and essentially um poisoning me essentially so they brushed that open and i literally felt better the next day but they said okay well you have this disease uh there's no treatment it's relatively new um the best thing we can tell you is just don't google life expectancy and we're going to keep an eye on it <laughs> with that to, uh, to, to young people that are, uh, recently married, I guess we've been married five years, but or uh, coming up on six years at this point, drove home. And of course we Googled the life expectancy and I think it was like eight to 10 or 12 years. And, uh, and so that was, boy, that was six. Oh boy. Oh, was that 11 years ago already or something like that. And, uh, so anyway, we, uh, we, we just kind of kept going with life. We realized that, okay, well, I want to look into liver health, but something really struck me when I was pulled down by my liver. And that's, boy, you know, I feel better when I'd eat certain things. And if I'd eat other things, uh, I just feel miserable. Like immediately have to run to the bathroom or, um, I, I basically, if I distill it down to simplest form, I realized stress was no good and food matters. That's pretty much what I, what I came up with. And I just didn't, um, uh, I just, it never really clicked with me before that, you know, the fuel you're putting in your body is really going to dictate your overall health. And how much of that was discussed in any of your doctor visits about your condition that, that you should even consider nutrition? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. It was zero. And I remember even asking my doctor when I was diagnosed, is there anything that I need to stay away from? Anything I should really, you know, make sure that is just, I'm not, I didn't want to say allergic to, but basically, is there any no-nos? And she said, no, this, this Remicade is going to have you feeling good. You're going to be right back to normal. And, and that, that at the time I was like, oh, okay, well, great. But looking back at it, I'm like, well, I, I, I would like to see a little more than that. You know, I'd like to see something being taken care of at the very root of the problem. But uh, it was never, it was never on my mind until I experienced that. Yeah. Sorry, so you had an, an issue with your colon and your liver, and it was never discussed that there should be any kind of scrutiny on what you put in your body, other than put put more in your body, right? Take a take a right a drug, yeah. Yep, 
Yep. So what Remicade does is it actually blocks the protein from sending an alert to your immune system that there's a problem. And so oh. it's just an immunosuppressant is all it is. So they're saying, okay, well, you, you've got this disease. You'll always have this disease. Don't worry about it. Just live your life and have the best quality of life you can. That's basically uh, what, what I gleaned from, you know, some of my uh, doctor's appointment stuff. And I'm not bashing doctors. I, no. I genuinely feel that I want to be, uh, you know, understand both sides. And I feel like there's uh, so many people can be in one ditch or the other where, you know, some in, in the functional medicine realm want to heal a broken arm with an essential oil. And some people in the other ditch, you know, they want the first uh, antibiotic you can for the first sniffle. So, you know, I, I want to try to meet in the middle and uh, and kind of understand both sides and try to uh, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so that's that's what I try to tell people is is because uh, in, in the opportunities I've, I've had to share or something, you know, you get lots of people that that come up and, you know, they'll have their their idea of anything I spoke about. And, and I just, I just say, you know, uh, God used doctors in my life for a time and I'm thankful for that, but I'm very thankful that I don't need to rely on, on that poor quality of life. And so I really try to keep things as most functional. I would, I would definitely be more on the functional side of things, but, um, but I think there needs to be balance there too. So, so, so. you notice that there was a difference in what you ate and stress levels. And then you started experimenting or doing some research or was the, was the term elimination diet or even, even a concept of that like out there to be discovered 10 years ago? Right. That's, that's a really good question. Uh, at the time I didn't even know it. I didn't even know there was much on the internet as far as nutrition. I mean, I figured there was, I mean, I, I really, I, I hadn't ever really thought about it. So basically how that went is when I realized that, boy, you know, and this sounds funny because, uh, the only thing that really even made me feel remotely calm in my system was just this, I think it was just a normal nine grain bread or something. When I was feeling really sick, I felt like if I ate that, my system would at least calm a little bit. And it's funny because, uh, grains are usually one of the first things you cut, uh, when you're struggling with inflammation. But that just shows you that the other things I was eating uh, were, were pretty void of nutrients. Worse. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was really, really interesting to kind of come to that point uh, for myself and experience it firsthand because I was like, wow. So uh, what else is out there? If this is a little slice of bread that's, you know, just bought at the grocery store and it's maybe healthier than some of the others on the shelf, but really not, you know, it's not a sprouted bread. It's not organic. It's not sourdough. It was just, it was just, bread and it wasn't anything as rich in nutrients like a steak or like a, yeah. a kefir or, or anything like that. But it was, it, it wasn't uh, veggies or anything like that. I realized, well, man, if this is just a little piece of bread that made me feel a little better, I just noticed what I call a little uptick in my health. But if I eat something else, man, it would just destroy my feeling, my, my gut, it would destroy just even bringing on a headache. And I just, uh, I just couldn't feel good on it. So I kind of started researching. I read a book called the maker's diet by Jordan Rubin. And it talked about how he was far worse than I was. He had, I mean, when you read the book and you see the picture of him and, and just the list of things that he had, there's, there's like two pages worth of sicknesses and diseases that he had. And he talked about all the doctrine he did and all these things, but basically got back to a very functional way of eating, a very biblical way of eating uh, from like the old Testament and the Bible and, different things. And he just cut out pretty much everything. 
which come to find out was basically the elimination diet, getting back to very, uh, you know, very simple, simple things to eat. And so I read the book and my mom actually didn't want me to, cause she read the first half of the book that talked about how sick he was. And, uh, so she didn't want me to read it cause she was afraid I'd get discouraged mm. and not want to, uh, you know, just think that's what was going to happen to me. And she got discouraged reading it because she was afraid that was what was going to happen to me. So she never finished it. And I, I read through it and boy, by the end I was like, man, if this, if food is really medicine, how, uh, what, what do I need to start learning? So I signed up for his email list and every so often there would be uh, what, you know, every couple of weeks I'd get an email and it would talk about, uh, it would be news article or be, I mean, uh, a health article, health news or, or concentrating on maybe the fats you're eating or whatever. And I'd read this article and it was just a nice read. And I just, I realized he's coming out with a health coaching program. And so I went through the program and I learned about fats and proteins and, and uh, toxicity in our food and, and the difference between organic and conventional and all these things I was learning about. And so we started slowly incorporating some of the, some of these practices into our life. And uh, I just was so interested. I was, it was like drinking water from a fire hose. I just wanted, I wanted as much info as I could get on it. So I started getting on the internet and uh, one, one week he sent me uh, an, a newsletter uh, to his subscribers, not me personally, but he said, I, I opened his email and he's talking about uh, high intensity, high intensity interval training that his friend Josh Axe put out. And so I was like, Oh, he's never really, you know, talked about any other functional doctor on his newsletter. So I went in and looked at Dr. Axe and he had this come to find out at that time it was like the third largest health website where their, their motto and their mission basically is food is medicine. And so I just started reading all these articles and I got on his probiotic and, and learning all this stuff. Well, a couple months later, um, I was watching a YouTube video of his just trying to learn as much as I could. And he said, if you have an autoimmune disease, watch this video. And at the end, I'm going to explain the underlying cause of every autoimmune disease. I was like, well, this is going to be interesting. I'm sure he's just pushing a product or whatever. And he was selling a program, but the content was so good. I, I listened to the YouTube video and I thought, well, yeah, I've learned enough about it. I'm sure he's going to say sugar's driving all this inflammation in my body, cut out sugar. And that's basically it. And inflammation is what's causing these autoimmune diseases and sugar's feeding that. And that's kind of what I had in my mind, but it was totally different. He, he got to the end and, or he started the video. He said, here it is. Toxicity. Toxicity is what is at the very root of all autoimmune diseases and talking about how we need to detoxify our bodies from these toxins and then replace uh, these, you know, what, what was putting in toxins with healing food. And, uh, and so that, that just, it clicked with me and it really made sense. I was like, yeah, that, you know, our body, when they're at a healthy, at a healthy level, you can handle a good deal of stress. You can handle a, a good deal of even toxins without really feeling a blip in your health. But boy, once you, once those build up over time, your body starts getting pulled down and overrun with stress, poor diet, poor choices, whatever. Uh, all of a sudden your health starts degrading as well. And then it's like, man, that makes, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. I think, I think I better try this. So he did sell a program called the secret detox. And I don't believe he even sells it at the time. Now I think it's called his leaky gut protocol or something. Anyway, I bought it and he sent me this huge three ring binder, basically explaining why we're going to do what we're going to do in this 28 day detox. 
And so I was, I was really intrigued. I read everything I could possible about it and understood it. It really made sense to me. And so I, I was telling my wife about it and she was excited about it. And, but yet I was still on this IV. So I'm like, man, if I'm pumping in these toxins and this has been a few years since my liver disease. So I started learning about health and nutrition 2012. Uh, by about 2015, I was ready. You know, I needed to take a step. My immune system had started building up an antibody towards my Remicade. It really hadn't been working anymore. Uh, so I called my doctor. I emailed my doctor and told her. She said, okay, get one more treatment. We'll wait four weeks, and then we'll test your antibody level and test the amount of medicine in your system, and we'll, we'll go from there. She said, but yes, it's sounding like we're going to have to switch up meds. And this was eight years after I'd been on it rather than 10, but, you know, it's uh, she wasn't surprised. And so I thought, boy, you know, this is 28-day detox, four weeks from now, and that's 28 days. And the wheels in my head start turning. They don't turn very much, but when it comes to this, they started turning. And I was like, man, I could do this detox while I'm waiting for my antibody test. So I knew the medicine was only going to last me about a week to 10 days of feeling good before I started going backwards again. My liver enzymes started uh, elevating once again. And, uh, and just, just for reference, my, my liver enzymes, the AST, when I was at my worst, was 391, and it was supposed to be 10 to 37. Oh. Uh, and my ALT was supposed to be 12 to 78, and it was 711. Um, my elk FOSS was supposed to be under 136, and it was 454. And then the, the amount of bile in my blood was supposed to be zero to one, and it was 2.3. Um, just to give a little bit of a reference as to where it was after my procedure, those dropped dramatically, but they always were about, you know, at least, a, um, 50 to a hundred times more than what they should have been. And, um, and so I was, I was kind of dealing with that. The liver numbers were starting to escalate again and, uh, uh, kept going up and up. And I was kind of sitting there thinking, well, I think I'm ready to do this thing. I think I know enough about it. We ordered enough food to do it. Uh, cause that's the key. I had to order all my food in. I'm, I'm growing, <laughs> raising animals, raising beef, uh, raising crops, but yet I couldn't eat anything I was growing and raising. And so I ordered my beef in my grass fed, grass finished beef. I ordered, uh, our, our dairy in. I ordered our veggies in all the things and got ready for it. And so the next day I got my IV and I just, I just had this piece that is going to be my last time getting my IV. And I went 28 days. I did the detox and, uh, basically just a quick snapshot of that. It, it really kind of looked, uh, I'd wake up, I'd take, uh, um, you know, I'd take a bone broth, eight ounces of, of homemade bone broth. I would uh, have that for my first thing in the morning, eight to 16 ounces. Uh, then by mid-morning, I would have uh, 20 ounces of juiced veggies, um, a certain recipe that I would follow. Uh, by noon, I would do what was called kind of a spinoff of what was called the Budwig Protocol. It's basically, you're recharging your cells with saturated fat. So it was uh, organic grass-fed A2 kefir with uh, flax oil, soaked chia seeds, cinnamon, coconut oil. It was pretty much like 50 to 55 grams of saturated fat. And honestly, the, nice. the flax oil made it quite gross, but I would just down it and boy, I'd feel so the flax part was the worst part skyrocket. of that? Uh, what, what's the, that? The flax was the worst part of that? Oh, the flax oil. Yeah, that was a little oh, rough. Flax oil. Okay. Yep, yeah, the flax oil. paint so, of that. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and it's funny because looking back at it, uh, when I do it now, I actually leave out the flax oil uh, uh, just cause, 
because I've, I've done a little more research into the flax oil and see it's probably not the greatest thing for you. And to be totally honest, I, I used to know why it was in there exactly, but I just, I upped the coconut oil and just go that route. But yeah, probably exactly right. I'm sure that's what it is. Uh, so and, sorry uh, to interrupt you, Rod, but you might have to explain to some of our audience what kefir is. I've sure. never heard of it. Yep, kefir. So yeah, the uh, kefir is basically, um, you put, uh, it's similar like a, a thin yogurt, essentially, and it's got oh. uh, more probiotics in it than yogurt does. Uh, there are active cultures that, you know, I would try to go with raw raw milk, and we'd, we'd uh, make our kefir and yogurt whenever we could, but I did order a bunch of it in um, that was already made, and it was just low heat processed, low heat pasteurized. Basically, just think of a, of a thinner yogurt, and it's made with kefir grains instead of a, a yogurt culture, so it's kind of made from a yeast uh yeast grains essentially that uh, takes the milk and uh, turns it into a pre-digested form really is what it is. I like and how, so your body has to do, do less to metabolize it. So like another way to say more probiotics is to say kind of like more, more rotten so much, like, like more of a different, like, is, I mean, like how, how do the probiotics come about in kefir and yogurt, right? It comes about through the, the degradation yeah. fermentation process, fermentation, right? Yeah. Right. Yep. So it ferments the milk. Exactly right. And it ferments the milk and then it creates these little colonies of bacteria that are good bacteria. Right. And, uh, and yeah, so in, in a good kefir sometimes, I mean, you can even see, sometimes see these little colonies, these little chunks of culture that, uh, as you drink little it guys. and, uh, and yeah, it's, Numbers. it's great. I would usually for mine, I kept it, I kept it raw. So it was a little bit of a sour flavor, but not, uh, not too bad. It was, I, I still enjoy uh, raw kefir, but it's uh, a lot of times people might put berries or strawberries or maybe even a little uh, real maple syrup or honey in, and that helps too. But it, yeah, super high in probiotics, and uh, and when you drink that, it it's really available to your body to digest because that's one thing too. Depending on what we eat, your body has to go through several steps to you know break it down, metabolize it. Uh, sometimes depending on what it is you're eating, sometimes store it as fat and then pull it out from your fat and burn as energy later. So anything we can put in our body that's readily available is, is just hugely beneficial because it's less taxing on your body. Okay. And that's the same with the bone broth too in the morning. Uh, the bone broth is, is readily absorbed. So it's, it's got so many amino acids and, uh, and, uh, and good properties to it that it's just really healing for your body. Yeah, I've heard about the bone broth thing in the morning. I, and I also feel bad, I should tell my listeners like, Ever you know, last month I talked a lot about nutrition, and I'm, I'm really getting into it now because I'm trying to discover it more. But but do not have the discipline to to eat the way that you're talking about now. Like full disclosure, I had six oatmeal raisin cookies <laughs> for breakfast this morning, so I mean, not a problem. I mean, it's like I probably need to fix some stuff too. So I'm talking about oh yeah, that bone broth is good for you in the morning as I'm eating cookies. But but yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've yeah. read this and heard this right that it's highly absorptive and, and getting the marrow and the and the fat out of the bones is. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and you don't have to feel bad. I always tell people when I tell them about the way I eat or the way I, I especially doing the detox was much more strict. I'm, uh, I'll get to what I'm on now with more of a maintenance plan is what I call it. But, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It really is. Uh, I tell people it, it was kind of overwhelming for some people cause, uh, uh, I, in my health transformation, you know, people, tell me like my folks would come up to me, well, what, what should we change? I want to, I want to, whether it's lose a little weight or I want to feel better or I want to, whatever it is, whatever their health goal is. Um, 
I didn't really know anything but what I did. So I, yeah. I just would say, well, we should do this. We should do this. We should do this. And slowly as I'm explaining it, they get a tired, uh, <laughs> just uninterested look on their face and people's eyes are starting to kind of go crossed. And I'm like, okay, well, um, I see I've overwhelmed you here. So yeah. basically it's funny because really what the first thing I changed was I, and it, it's funny cause if I'm, if I'm telling it, I laugh myself and usually people laugh when they hear it, but I changed the Mountain Dew I drank. So that was the first health change we made is, I don't know if they even do it anymore. I, I don't usually buy pop, but it, um, it went from the normal Mountain Dew to the throwback Mountain Dew. And that still had all the dyes in it and all the brominated vegetable oil and all the things, but it didn't have high fructose corn syrup. It had real, real sugar. sugar. So that was the first change I made. And, and it is kind of funny, but at the same time, it really did get the momentum going. So I, I, it really got this flywheel of change. I was like, well, I could change that. Boy, you know what? What if I didn't do Mountain Dew? What if I did the Starbucks Frappuccino that's uh, in the glass bottle and it's twice as expensive as this Mountain Dew? But you know what? At least uh, it's still got 46 grams of sugars, but hey, at least it's better. It doesn't have the dyes, doesn't have everything. So I changed to that. And then from that, I went to uh, uh, unsweetened tea. And then from that, thankfully, throughout the years, uh, you know, places started getting in kombucha and things like that. Then I just grabbed one of those. And granted, I, I bought a couple the other day and come to find out they're five bucks a piece. But hey, I was like, hey, it's investment in your health. So I, I bought them anyway. But oh, it yeah. was uh, so it's just it, I really enjoy telling that part of the story because it really doesn't have to start with a huge change. And then as I learned more, we, we'd slowly start transitioning what we ate before we did this detox. And so by the time we did this detox, we only had to cut out a couple more things and start adding in a few things. And the bone broth, especially people are like, Ooh, yeah, it's unflavored. I don't know. I just kind of cringe putting it down and I drink it fast. And well, the, the recipe my wife uses, it's if I just tell people it tastes like steak in a cup because it's seasoned with rosemary and garlic and salt and, and all these things. It's amazing. And it's actually a warm cup of that in the morning, she makes it a whole lot more in the winter time when there's a little more, you know, shorter days and more time to do it. But, um, and then in the summertime, I actually buy a, a powdered bone broth protein, but, um, and she still makes it from time to time. It's just less, less than we usually do. But, uh, so yeah, you know, your cookie for breakfast in the morning, you know what you could change from, uh, a normal cookie to a homemade cookie with real ingredients, and that's your first good change. <laughs> well, well, also, so, I don't normally it, it eat with a cup of raw milk there too. It was, what, a, it, sorry, was a, what's that? it was a fast morning. I don't normally eat cookies for breakfast. I usually eat really? a, lot, a lot of like full fat yogurts and things like that. But like you know what I mean? Like I'm not I'm not too disciplined yeah. on it, right? I'm just uh, uh, I'm I'm yep. really vaguely aware that there's a, a whole bunch that we're missing when it comes to understanding what we should be eating or not, which is is kind right. of insane. As, a, as an animal yeah. science major at SDSU, I learned and took a ton of classes on how to optimize a diet of livestock. And, yep. and then kind of crazy to me, like, hey, like if your animals are sick, like, hey, first thing you should check, like, do they have a proper diet? Are all their needs met? Like, yeah. is everything going on? Are they eating something? Is there a toxin in the silage? Like, you go through all these tests, right? So yeah. now you have, like, you're in the sick pen, right? Like, you've, you're, yep. you've got a chronic disease. And yeah. they're like... No, it can't be that. Like, it's everything's fine there. We're not even going to ask, right. what you, you know, yeah. like it doesn't even come. It's right. kind of insane, you know, yeah. that we don't. That's a great correlation. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. 
Yeah, I I agree. It is it really is so interesting to to look into that and see uh you know a couple changes could really benefit someone's health and and uh I I I feel like, you know, taking out the things that just like you're saying with an animal rash and you take out the things that obviously are causing it and get them sometimes even you think of a bloated calf in a lot you get them out you give them long stem hay and make sure they have good water yeah. and yeah, keep right. an eye on them for a while and it's yeah. just it's a diet change yeah that's good yeah yeah you just simplify so their not, diet up to things that you know doesn't going to get them in trouble and then reintroduce stuff back in if you can and absolutely huh. absolutely so you heat that bone broth did you like make a big vat of it and then then get it in the microwave or how do you keep it from settling out because it won't get the big thick stuff on top and do you have to like put right. it in little cups and then heat it up little mason jars oh man yeah see you know all about it that's awesome so when we first started making it my wife actually did not enjoy making it because it would take 48 hours so you oh, put yeah. it on the stove and it would simmer for 48 hours and uh and then we have to pour it like you're pouring it in the sink it's splashing everywhere and and then you pour it into these, you know, these jars and you can freeze some of the jars and put some in the fridge and, and all of these things. But, uh, when the instant pot came out, I don't know if you guys are familiar oh, with the yeah. instant pot, but yeah. So she started using that and that turned into a two hour job and it would usually stink up the house, but with the instant pot, you know, it's you don't smell anything while it's cooking. When you take the top off, you smell a little bit, but, uh, when you release the steam, but that's it. And so what she did is she got some silicone, um, cubes, I guess you'd say, and she fills those and freezes it. And then they're, they're eight ounce cubes. So you just chuck a, uh, one of the cubes in the, uh, in a pot in the morning and warm it up on the stove and, and drink it. So put a little salt in there and drink her down. Uh, so that's, that's the handiest way to do it. Yeah. Uh, for me, if I'm, if I'm fighting something or feel like I'm under the weather or, uh, you know, trying to do a detoxification month again or something like that, I'll keep some in the fridge that I just scoop out and it's uh, it should good bone broth should be really gelatinous. So if it's in the fridge, it actually sets up and it's more like a jello. Literally you can shake it and it looks like jello and that's the gelatin in it. And, uh, and if you have good, bro- good, good quality bones and, and uh, um, that gelatin will really, uh, really set up nicely. Nothing will settle out. That's my, that's my favorite, like fun facts about the vegan diet. It's like no such thing as vegan jello doesn't exist. Right. You can't, can't <laughs> yeah. recreate jello yeah. without. That is perfect. I, I never actually thought about that. Yeah. Yes. It's like all that these people genius. are like, oh, we're vegans. And then the kids are eating jigglers over in the corner. Like, we're fine. We're not consuming. You're right. You're right. Like, you're yep. And we're wearing leather shoes. Yeah. You're just eating the joints. It's all. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Right. <laughs> eat the good stuff. That is oh. perfect. I hey, really like that. Uh, okay, so you will. So you'll eat some gelatinous bone broth, like straight out of the fridge, so it's like a jiggler, like you know, like a pudding pop, like like Bill Cosby style. You like to go to the fridge and get some of that out, <laughs> that way with the spoon. Yeah, or right. Always yeah, they, I, I usually warm it up. I I kind of uh, I drink it warm, and uh, but my wife does make a uh, uh, gelatin cube, so it's like a Jello block, is what it is. Uh, and that she usually puts in some, like some organic fruit juice and, uh, some quite a bit of raw honey actually. And you, you just warm it up slightly on the stove, mix it in with your, with your gelatin. And, uh, we just get some grass fed gelatin. I think it's from the great, great lakes gelatin, I think, and, uh, use that. And so that's the kids will go through a pan of that and like literally an afternoon. So, um, <laughs> and we, we don't mind it's uh, it's a good treat. So we don't okay. use our own. What's that Gel, recipe again? For that, but. Can we can we get that recipe again to make your homemade 
homemade jello like gelatin sure you know, how you flavor yeah it i don't i don't it. have the exact measurements in front of me but it's uh it's great lakes gelatin yeah. uh powdered form yeah i think it's great lakes i should look it up while i'm on here but um so yeah great lakes gelatin comes in an orange container okay. and does uh, it come flavored or do you flavor it yourself uh, we flavored ourselves. So we get the unflavored and, uh, then you kind of, I think you, uh, is it called bloom? I think you bloom it. You put some water in with it and get the gel going. Nice. And then you, you take some honey and you take some, uh, or we use organic fruit juice, whatever flavor you like, mix it together, stir everything and dump it all together, put it in a nine by 13 and stick it in the fridge and probably half hour, 45 minutes. You have, you have those, uh, gelatin Jiggers. cubes. Nice. Yep. Just cut off a huge chunk of that and, and you can put as much, I mean, I, I know honey's high in sugar, but, uh, we don't, we don't really shy away from carbs as long as they're real carbs, yeah. like honey, real maple syrup. Um, and, uh, we don't, uh, we, we try to stay away from refined sugar, but, um, but yeah, real carbs, we, we, uh, we put in that block and I don't really limit the kids on them at all because I know that the gelatin they're getting is, is better better than the amount of sugar they're getting. They really don't mm. bounce off the walls. It's just a good, healthy treat for them. So, so you kind of make this transition. Too. So <clears throat> initially we said, you know, high fructose corn syrup, you know, Hey, you're, you're a corn farmer, right? Like, boy, it's kind of, it's kind of yeah. tough to say, man, I, I, it was a benefit for, for you to move from high fructose corn yes. syrup to, to green sugar. And now you're buying it from, you know, Jamaica and South yep. America again. Now you're buying cane sugar and that's kind of a, but then you went full circle and you went right back to honey, which you're even, yep better equipped to produce without any inputs on your ranch. Yes. And we actually did. We actually got our first eight beehives this year too. So, so that's exciting, but uh, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up too, because that was part of the transition is when I was eating this way, uh, you know, I was, I was really um, discouraged because I realized that the work I was doing was really not conducive to the way I was eating. And I wouldn't say that I necessarily felt like a hypocrite because I, you know, I, I didn't plan this. It's just kind of how it worked out and how God used it in my life. And I see, I see his hand in it so much now too. But in 2014, this was before we made our health transformation. Uh, we had some of the best crops that, that I'd ever grown. We had, it sounds funny. Cause I don't know, uh, uh, how many your listeners, I don't know what yields they're used to, but we had 145 bushel corn. And I thought, Oh my goodness. What am I in Iowa? Yeah. <laughs> I was just thrilled. I was thrilled. I was, that's funny. Cause I was speaking this winter at a uh, conference down in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and there was a bunch of people there from Iowa. And I said, uh, and maybe it was in Sioux Falls. I can't remember, but I told him, I said, well, I was telling how many inputs I put into my corn. And I said, but I did get off 145 bushel corn off that field. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they You're laughed like, oh, at we're me. I'll be staying that. after. You're right. Yeah, exactly. This is like silage corn to them down yeah. there. And, uh, so I said, don't worry, I'll be sticking around later to teach you how to grow some amazing corn. So, <laughs> and uh, of course they rolled their eyes. But what's funny is I said that exact same thing in Colorado last winter and nobody laughed. So they were all like, that is, that is really good corn. What are you talking about? Back to impressive, it's just yeah. funny, the different areas that, uh, you know, what they're used to. So, and climate of course is huge one, soil, yeah. climate, everything. But, um, anyway, so yeah, I felt so discouraged though. I was going out checking these crops and the corn looked amazing. I had 75 bushel spring wheat. I was happy about it, but I was checking it and I checked our beans. I think we had 48 bushel beans 
all these numbers were amazing to me and I was looking through and, but yet I, I really felt nothing. I didn't feel excited about it. I, I felt a complete lack of purpose and a complete, it sounds kind of dramatic to say, but I honestly remember feeling like, well, you know what, if this all burned up, it really wouldn't matter to me because I just felt a disconnect between what I was growing, what I was doing for livelihood and what I was putting in my body. And that, that was discouraging for a time because I was like, well, how do you transition? Do you quit farming? Do I go work at a health food store? Do I start my own health website? What do I do? And I hadn't, I was, this was the year before I actually had my, my trend, my transformation in my health. And I'd started making a lot of changes and I knew the direction we kind of needed to go, but I knew nothing of regenerative agriculture or, or soil health at that time. I was, I really never dug in the soil uh, other than when I had a really bad stand of corn after I mudded it into a, a wet gumbo uh, field. And I dug up a corn plant at that point to see what was wrong. And that was it. Sidewall compaction got me that year. But anyway, it was, uh, I just didn't, I never dug in the soil. I never thought about anything. I knew we put some cover crops in for grazing. That was about the extent of it. And we grazed our corn stalks. That was about it. Um, so we, uh, uh, fast forward about a year, we went through harvest. I was thankful with how things went, but yet we had great crops, but prices were down. And so we really didn't move the needle ahead a lot financially. And so here we are in 2015, I had my radical health transformation, uh, really didn't feel purposeful with the direction we were going with our, with our, um, farming and things. And so I was just really, really kind of searching as to what I should do. And, uh, and I just remember uh, a guy at church, actually, one time I seen him there, he was a guest. And I said, I talked to him a little bit afterwards and he kind of struck me as a farmer, but I, so I was just picking his brain a little. And I said, you, you, he's from Fargo. I said, are you an organic farmer or what do you do? He said, no, I work for a farmer. It's all conventional. But he said uh, a lot of tillage and I'm wanting him to work more organic and more regenerative. And I said, well, <laughs> what's regenerative? I said, is there ever, do you come across anybody that farms for their cattle where, you know, you can plant a cover crop and financially make it make sense with grazing your cattle through there and not just do cash grains and high inputs and all the things. He said, well, have you ever heard of Gabe Brown? And I said, no, never heard of him. So he was scrolling through his phone, looking for his number. He said, oh, I must not have his number anymore. He said, look him up on YouTube. Well, then I found out who Gabe Brown was and listened to I don't know how many hours of YouTube videos and then kind of got into that, realized that there's, there's kind of a, a group of people out there willing to teach about this thing called soil health and regenerative agriculture. And he had his phone number at the end of one of his videos and I listened to him enough to realize he's pretty famous. So I called him expecting to get an answer machine or a, or a secretary and he answered and I knew right away it was Gabe and said, Hey, Gabe. I said, I expected a secretary. He said, no, just sitting here in the tractor planting some covers. And so I got to know him there and he's really helped us down this path as well. Um, so, so that was kind of really realizing that there's another way of looking at the farming side of things. You know, you can just focusing on soil health. You can start working towards the point of, of, uh, earning the right to cut inputs. And obviously if I can utilize a Haney soil test and cut my inputs without sacrificing yield. Uh, of course I want to do that. And so that's what we started doing for soil testing is, uh, doing the Haney soil test and some PLFA studies and some different things like that. 
and just seeing where our soil is and uh, how we can start um, changing some things to, to become more profitable. And that's kind of when I got to looking into an untreated corn um, and I was able to save 30 bucks an acre just on seed uh, going to a conventional untreated corn. And then I found out about the soil benefits of not having, uh, you know, neonics on the seed and fungicide on the seed and things like that. So that, that kind of moved us in that direction. And it's similar to my health journey. We started wading into the water, kind of like my health journey. I said, uh, first change I made was changing the Mountain Dew I drank. Uh, it's kind of what we did here. The first change I made was change my soil test, change the corn I planted. Uh, we still sprayed a little different type chemical and uh, start cutting back on some inputs there. But one thing I should say, too, is I really noticed uh, as these things started making sense to me, I really uh, got that purpose and that passion back for what I was doing. And I really didn't necessarily have to move and I didn't have to change my job. I just had to realize that there's another way of looking at things. Okay. So tell us about, so today, what kind of things do you grow on your farm that you directly eat, you and your family, that that you weren't five, six, seven years ago? Okay. So the things that we eat from our farm? Yeah. Yeah. What do you raise? Sure. So not as many as I would, as I would love to say, but it's becoming more and more because we have been transitioning. Uh, But right away, what changed was our our meat. Um, you know, as I learned more about health and nutrition, we quit giving, uh, I wanted to raise obviously the cattle that I could eat. And, uh, so I quit giving implants in the spring, uh, branding time. Um, we quit using, uh, porons for anything that we were going to, that we we're going to consume ourselves as well. Um, so I, I changed that right away. So we, we utilize, you know, our beef. Um, and so we eat, you know, obviously we eat the meat from it, but also, uh, we started having the, the organs as well kept back when we butcher because, uh, like, liver is extremely one of the best multivitamins you could have. So uh, we, we do have that available, too. So cattle was a big thing. Um, we do have a regenerative uh, garden. As I start going through this and telling my wife all about it, I said, here, how about we do a small garden and we utilize every soil health principle that we can, all six tenets of soil health and also, uh, you know, why don't we just really focus on this? I want you to see how we can transition this soil. And so in that garden, I mean, we grow lots of things in that garden. I don't know if you want me to tell you everything there, but as far as on a production side of things, uh, you know, I planted an untreated sunflower that I grew last year uh, for bird seed. But um, uh, we also, like I said, we integrate, uh, we grow some sweet corn last year. We grew some sweet corn on our place that was uh, raised in a regenerative manner. We didn't have a lot of it. I should have done it in a little different area, but also, um, yeah, we, uh, we added bees. So we're able to utilize the, the honey ourselves and we did get our own dairy cow. So okay. we, we put her on cover crop whenever we can too. Okay. Did you get a Jersey Guernsey? What'd you get? Yeah, we have, we have a Jersey and, uh, uh we have a Jersey now and also a, a half Jersey, half Angus. So, okay. But we would we'd really like to get a Normandy. Uh, it's kind of tough to come by, but they seem a little more resilient than <laughs> the jerseys sometimes look a little rough through the winter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Great. One so, yeah. thing that we skipped over that I we want to go back to is when you started talking about um, the diet and, and making the change, you were at day one of a 28 cleanse, and you're also yeah. 28 days away from your next 
IV, right? Yes. Yes. Correct. So then did you go yeah. back to the IV or not? I did not. So never did. I didn't. I'll uh, got my computer in front of me and I'll pull up exactly the conversation I had with my doctors uh, or my doctor. Um, I can find it here. But yeah, basically after the 28 days, um, I talked with my doctor how it had been losing uh, just the effective its efficacy. It wasn't working. So obviously she agreed that we're going to do this antibody test. And, uh, so I did the detox and felt better than I ever had, ever had before. I was more vibrant, had more energy. I should say, I kind of stopped at the Budwood, Budwood protocol that after in the afternoon, you'd have, you know, a raw salad or a steamed salad with, with a good protein middle after middle of the afternoon. And then at night you'd have a good protein, uh, steamed broccoli or whatever, tons of grass fed butter. It was amazing. You, you, your second half of the day was wonderful. And so this diet became more and more enjoyable. My body really started craving some of the foods I was eating and it became easier and easier. Um, and so after the 28 days, uh, I emailed my doctor and she, she got the labs that day and, uh, she emailed me and said, Roy, your most recent blood work is absolutely normal. Good job at whatever you're doing to keep yourself healthy. Oh boy. So I texted, I emailed her back and said, well, that's wonderful news. When do we hear about the antibody test? And later that day, she said, uh, Roy, you had very low level of Remicade in your system and a high antibody level. So we must get your IVs on time and make sure it's at the highest dose. And I gave her the dosage, which was already the highest one, and said I was getting them every six weeks, uh, very, very religiously, every six weeks. And so, and she, I just, I explained the detox to her. And I, I always tried to keep my emails short to her because I knew she had a lot going on. So I, kind of gave her the cliff notes of what I was doing and uh, send it back. And she said, she said, Roy, I'd like you to continue your diet and your meds. I have to feel the meds are doing something. And I uh, very, uh, what would you say? Very carefully worded my next email and said, with all due respect, I feel like I've detoxed all the meds out of my body and my body has built immunity to the drug already. So that would be why I have high antibody level and no Remicade because this detox I did literally took whatever was in my system out. And um, so since I'm doing so well with such little medicine in my system, would you please consider supporting me on a six-month trial run without meds? She responded and said, I'm very afraid of doing this, but this is not a dictatorship. It is a partnership. So if you're okay with the risk of having a flare-up and being a long ways from Mayo, I'm okay with it too. And boy, with that, I was just ecstatic. I was so, so thrilled. And... Uh, and yeah, that was, let's see, that would have been in 2015. So yeah, that was eight years ago. So eight years ago. Yeah. And that's, that's the last medication you took. That was the last It was yep. medical intervention you that you had to, to deal with. Yes, that's correct. Wow. Yep. And, and you had, so you, you, you've, so yeah, where you're at now, I mean, it's not, you, do you have any signs of Crohn's disease or the liver disease, autoimmune problems or right so so a couple of years so every year i went back for about four years after being off the meds i went back and uh would get a colonoscopy in the fall and uh blood work done and then i'd go home it's just one day one day uh, appointment and then i'd head back and uh the first year said things look much much better there's little inflammation but you're feeling great your labs are completely normal uh you know what just keep doing what you're doing and so the next year I went back and I was, I 
I really did. I felt amazing. So I went back for another colonoscopy. And uh, this, so at Mayo, they do so many colonoscopies in a day. It's, it, I can't even remember the number. It's hundreds. <laughs> and so it's not just my one doctor that is doing my colonoscopy. So usually it was uh, a surgeon doing it, and then they would report to her. And so sometimes one, one year, I think she did it too. But this year, it was a different doctor doing the, the colonoscopy. And so partway through my colonoscopy, they actually paged her. And she said that they couldn't find anything. They said it looked like a textbook colon. And uh, there, there you have it. I'm happy to talk about my colon on your show. You kind of lose all shame when you have yeah. a digestive <laughs> issue. So, <laughs> but, but they said it looks like a textbook colon. They said you, you look colon. great. We couldn't find any old disease. We couldn't see any, any scar, scarring. Couldn't see any inflammation. Said it, They literally tech paged me to make sure we had the right patient. And... Uh, she was she was thrilled. I was thrilled. Uh, lab numbers were totally normal. And uh, so before I left, she wanted me to go get a flu shot. And uh, she wrote up the uh, she wrote up the uh, she said, you're doing so good. I just don't want anything to knock you back. So she wrote up the uh, the order for the flu shot. And I went out the door. I didn't I never went and got the flu shot. But yeah. I uh, I just decided, you know what, I've detoxed this Remicade. I don't want uh, I don't want to mess up, you know, what I've what I've worked for. But uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, that was the last medicine. And so for two years after that, it still looked good. Um, I went back for annual checks. It wasn't as good as the one year. And as you, as you, you know, go through this transition, all of a sudden you feel so good. Sometimes you don't stay as disciplined as you should in certain areas. And, and I can, I, I don't feel sick sometimes, but I know I haven't been, you know, taking care of myself like I should. And so some of those years, there was maybe a little inflammation there and maybe some uh, disease that showed in remission, but not active. She'd say non-active colitis is what she called it. And uh, so, so one year, there's nothing. It just showed me that how di- as disciplined as I want to be is kind of up to me. And I can, I can be super disciplined and do what I know I need to and have, you know, the, the colonoscopy can be completely clear and look good. And if I get a little lax and I slack off a little bit, uh, that can kind of show up a little bit. So I'm not, I'm not saying there's, there's never any symptoms. Usually if I get sick, like with a cold or the flu or something, I kind of notice it in my gut first. And what I kind of believe it is, is, you know, the weaker part of your body is probably going to, that's where you're going to notice the sickness more in the other areas. And in the last couple of years, um, even, even my, uh, my gut, like if I'm pulled down by a virus or sickness or whatever, my gut really hasn't even been compromised that bad. Um, but I usually do notice it in digestion first, you know, if my body is really pulled down and that's kind of an indicator. Okay. I need to, you know, cut out, cut out my coffee, probably any stimulants that I'm currently, uh, taking or anything like that, as far as coffee, caffeine, if I'm having more sugar than normal. I usually cut that out and then up the bone broth like crazy. And, and, uh, usually Meredith, uh, if I tell her I'm, you know, needing to kind of build up my gut again, she'll really boost the bone broth meals and, and, uh, get bone broth rolling and, and stuff. So it doesn't take long and I feel, feel great again, but I would say I don't have any Crohn's symptoms. You can usually tell if your gut's being compromised and feels like Crohn's or just the normal sickness. And, uh, I don't usually feel it, uh, as being, um, I don't think I've had any Crohn's, I'd call it pinching or stabbing feeling in your abdomen due to the Crohn's for, for, yeah, eight years. Well, phenomenal. 
No, it's a phenomenal recovery, and thank you so much for explaining all that and your journey, and, and I, I hope it's helpful to the people, and, and maybe there's people that are you know, facing some similar challenges that can, uh, can hear what you're talking and going through and, and help learn from that. So, Absolutely. I, I really hope so, and that is, that is my prayer, that it's something people can find some hope for their journey, whatever it is, and, uh, and always feel free to reach out. Not that I'll have the answer, but perhaps I can maybe direct them in a direction where they can find it anyway. And I think as you, you relate this back to your soil health journey, and I, it's really relative to me right now with, we were really dry and we started to see some yep. issues with corn, potassium uptake because, you know, poor root development. And it's all because of lack of rain. So like when a condition gets poor, all these other things start to show up, right? So whether it's yeah, your absolutely. health, whether it's, you know, cattle, soil, like, but then you have to go back to the root of it. And yes. so often we're just like, ah, it's, this is the problem. Hurry up. Let's just go fix this. Like, let's throw this Band-Aid on it. And you can do that. But if you never really get to the core root of what the issue was, you never fully right. understand it. You don't actually fix it. And it continues to come back and linger. And So I think what yeah. you've done as far as, you know, getting to the core of let's fix our soil health in a bit more of a regenerative look more all natural look, I would say, you know, I mean, that's what mattered for your health. And that's probably what's going to matter for your operation is sticking to the, Absolutely. the core of it. Yeah. It's, it's funny because when I was reading the maker's diet and kind of learning about health and nutrition and going through that health coaching class and different things, they, Jordan Rubin always say, well, all health begins in the soil. And I, I was like, yeah, well, I was, I was still, I mean, at, at that point, I still knew nothing about soil health. I was just trying to think of how to get myself better. And I didn't, I really didn't ever really think that was, that was necessary to really think about that all health really does begin in the soil. But as, as I've learned more about soil health and if your so if your health, soil health is good, your plant is going to be that much more healthy. Anything, if you're consuming that plant as a vegetable or the animal that you're eating or that dairy cow that you're getting your dairy from is eating that plant, then that, that's going to be passed right on to the end product of what we're consuming. And it really is a trickle down effect. And, uh, and especially as you get into learning about the microbiome and our guts in general, it is so similar to how the soil functions as well. You know, the symbiotic relationships between plants, between, uh, uh, fungus and bacteria and, and all those things and insects and beneficials and, and, uh, everything is so similar to our own health that I've been able to see firsthand that all health really does begin in the soil. And one of our, one of our fields that uh, we've kind of focused on, especially not uh, doing much for conventional practices or any kind of, we still use a little chemical on it, but uh, cut fertility way back and, and uh, integrated the livestock more on that, that chunk of ground. Uh, the soil health is, is just far and away better than, uh, than our other ground right across the fence. And this year, especially with as dry as we were in the spring, the spring planted triticale held on and really, really wasn't hindered by the drought near as badly as it was just, you know, half mile away. And uh, I do have to think that the soil health is, helps, helps build a more resilient plant as well. You bet. Totally agree. 
No, it makes sense. I, I want to know if you're okay with it, Roy, if we reached out to Great Plains Gelatin as maybe a sponsor of this episode. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like Garrison Keylor, we could do one of those. And today's episode yeah. is brought to you by Great Plains Gelatin. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Put a, put a <laughs> smile on the kids' faces. Right, exactly. Okay. All right, we're going to do that. We're going to name drop you. Love Absolutely. That. that sounds excellent. What's funny is I called Great Plains Gelatin to see if they ever, when we started raising our own grass-fed beef, I was like, man, wish we could raise our own uh, grass-fed collagen too and sell that with our meat, you know? And uh, and then come to find out very few places in America actually create their own uh, gelatin and collagen. It's usually all done in, I don't know, if, I can't remember if it's South America, something like that. Really? But they said where Great Plains Gelatin was, I want to say it's like over in Wisconsin or, or somewhere like that. And maybe, maybe Michigan, I can't remember exactly, but um, it just was uh, funny because they said when they used to do their own, the whole city stank because of <laughs> yeah. the process. Right. And apparently it was far more difficult to find anybody to uh, make our hides and bones and whatever uh, into into collagen and gelatin than than I thought it would be. So, but uh, Real so yeah, the lady gelatin. I talked to there, I'm still friends with. No, that's great. Well, Roy, thank you so much for uh, for being on with us and sharing your story. We really appreciate cool. it. Um, it's a great conversation. Absolutely. Oh man, I loved it. So I appreciate it. it's an honor to be on, and and uh, yeah, really much, very much enjoy it. Very good. It's been awesome. Thanks, Roy. We'll see ya. Well, we hope you enjoyed another episode of the Roots and Ruminants podcast. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all those social media things. And, uh, you know, if you ever have any questions, just give us a call. Um, we've got a toll-free number here at 888-498-7333. Be glad to hear from you. Thank you.